Following the handover of the treaty ports in 1938, Irish coastal waters were largely unprotected. As such, the Marine and Coast Watching Service was established in 1939. A network of 83 lookout posts, or LOPs, were built around the coast of Ireland and demanded by members of the Local Defence Force, or the LDF. The Coast Watchers were responsible for identifying and reporting on shipping and aircraft movements and also on any communications between ship and shore. The Marine and Coast Watching Service was disbanded in October 1945, soon after the end of World War II. Mary McCarthy's daughter, Mary Rose McCarthy, has taken a huge interest in and conducted a lot of research into the Coast Watch Service, and she believes that they have never been given their due credit for their service to the country at the time. Just a little bit in keeping with my mother's story, I suppose, and de Valera when he came to power, well, in 33 and then 37 and 38, but from the very beginning, because there was a feeling that Germany had been treated unfairly at the Treaty of Versailles, that there would be another conflict. And de Valera stated that Ireland would be neutral in that conflict, which is considered unusual for a small country with a large neighbour to state its neutrality rather than supporting the neighbour. And Churchill had huge problems with that as Admiral of the Navy and later or as Prime Minister of Great Britain. But it's all very well and fine to uh, say you're going to be neutral, but how do you defend that neutrality? And if you bear in mind the Irish free state, as it was known when it was first set up, was still in its infancy, really, when the Second World War broke out. It was only 17 years in existence, and two of those had been taken up with civil war. So there was really no great army in Ireland at the time. So how to defend the coast of Ireland? And England and Germany were both had their eye on the coast of Ireland as well, because to use the naval bases that my mother mentioned earlier, or for Germany maybe to come into Ireland and use Ireland as a platform to attack. Exactly. So they came up with the idea of having lookout posts, and they were designed by an architect in the Office of Public Works. And there were 82 of them put on headlands around the coast of Ireland in the most remote places you can think of. But they set up what they called the Coast Watching Service. And before they even had huts, they had bell tents. Now, out on these <laughs> windswept headlands, more often than not, the bell tents blew away. So finally, they constructed these lookout posts and they were made from prefabricated concrete, each to the very same design, 137 prefabricated blocks made them up. They were kind of hexagonal in design with six windows, two facing seaward, two looking right and two looking left. As my mother said, they had a fireplace. They had one table which had to be scrubbed three times a day and on the table was kept the logbook and of course that was sacrosanct. And they employed, as my mother said already, um, local people who had knowledge of the coast, either from fishing or from farming, knew the nooks and crannies and the inlets and they were employed as army personnel for the duration of the war on army rates of pay, army uniform. They manned these lookout posts in the 82 places around the country in eight-hour shifts and one was to be inside to answer the telephone or make telephone calls and the other was to watch the the sea really. The German Navy commenced World War II with 56 submarines, of which only 24 were suitable for operations in the Atlantic. In the five and a half years of the war, German shipyards built 1,156 U-boats, of which 784 were lost from enemy action or other causes. 
their toll of enemy shipping was 2,603 merchant ships of over 13.5 million tonnes and 175 naval vessels of all types. In terms of human lives, 28,000 German U-boat crew of the total of 40,900 men recruited into the service lost their lives and 5,000 were taken prisoner of war. When the war ended, 156 U-boats surrendered, 221 were scuttled by their own crews and two escaped to Argentina. German U-boats in World War II operated in all oceans of the world and were responsible for sinking enemy ships in areas as far distant as the Dutch East Indies and the Arctic Ocean. Brendan Cahill is a former diver and a member of the Coast Guard and Towhead. He has taken a keen interest in U-260 and has dived many times and where it lies a few nautical miles south of Glandore. This particular U-boat, the U-260, is what's known as a Type 7C U-boat. The Type 7C would have been in the Second World War. It was an ocean-going U-boat and it would have been more or less the mainstay of the U-boat fleet at the time. They commenced building them in 1936 and by the, the time the war had started they had a number of them. The Germans had a number of them. They would have seen a lot of service throughout the Second World War and would have been the mainstay basically of the German U-boat fleet until later in the war the advent of the, the larger Type 9s and at the end of the war then the Type 21s. How well armed was she? Um, she was designed basically for ship warfare to sink ships. So the primary armament as such would have been the torpedoes on the U-boat. Now it did, the, the Type 7s would have had defensive armament but and they would have had a, a 37mm gun on some of the, the U-boats that was designed basically to save on torpedoes if the U-boat was in a position to surface where there may not have been escorts with a lone merchant ship that they could have used the 37mm gun to, to maybe finish off a merchant ship rather than you know using one of the torpedoes. I'm looking at a photograph of a, a similar type a submarine. You said to me earlier, roughly, is it half the size of a GAA pitch? It, they're 67 metres long, which would be roughly about from the goalpost to the halfway line of a, a GAA pitch. So they were quite a substantial vessel. They're in or around, you know, with different variations, they would have been in or around 800 tonnes displacement and they'd be approximately 10 metres high from the bottom of the keel to the top of the conning tower and about 20 feet wide at the widest point. So they would be quite a substantial vessel, yeah. And crew-wise then, roughly over 40? Crew-wise, anything between 42 and 48 souls on board. Um, in relation to the torpedoes, normally a fully armed U-boat would have carried 14 of the torpedoes. Now the torpedoes are quite a substantial object. They'd be about 2 feet wide and about 10 feet long. So they were quite a substantial object. So would have, the space in them would have been absolutely minuscule inside these. And it's very, very hard to imagine even when, when you see it on the bottom. It's hard to understand how maybe nearly 50 people could operate inside something of this size, you know. Yeah. And live and sleep and, live and, and eat. And a patrol typically was about six weeks long at sea. So, as I said, to, to imagine, try and imagine how close to 50 people could live on board this thing and literally do everything and function as, as a war crew as well as... When you see them in real life, it's, it's quite difficult to imagine. In a very confined space, yeah. yeah. Very much so. In 1942, and being the daughter of a lighthouse keeper, 10-year-old Mary Glanville had seen places in the country that most people would never have seen as adults. But such was the life of a lighthouse keeper's family. On the 18th of December 1942, and just a week before Christmas, lightkeeper Sam Glanville and his family were heading for a new posting to the Galleyhead Lighthouse. 
They arrived in Clonakilty from Skerries in County Dublin and were now making their way to the Galley Head, complete with all their possessions and their pet cat, Scamp. Their mode of transport on this occasion was pony and trap. We left Skerries. It just shows how quickly you can travel nowadays. We left Skerries of an evening on the train and came into Dublin. Stayed overnight in Dublin. The following morning, don't ask me the time, it was Kingsbridge at the time, it's now um, Houston. Houston yeah. Got the train and came all the way down to Cork. And then at Cork, we had to go across Cork City, get to Albert Quay and get the train. To West Cork. To West Cork. But anyhow, we had a cat, you see, while we were in Skerries, we had a cat called Scamp. And the thing is, what will we do with Scamp? Will we leave it? Now, there were, four, there were three other families and they'd have looked after the cat. But anyhow... We decided to bring the cat with us, so we put the cat into a kind of a picnic hamper thing. And the cat came all the way from Skerries into Dublin, was looked after all the time by my mother. Came down from Dublin down to Cork, across to Albuquerque, down to Clonakilty, all the way by train in the hamper. And it ended up at the galley head, so now we have the cat there, not the galley head. But I just remember one thing going out. We went out in a pony trap on a, the 18th of December. We left Clonakilty, so a week to Christmas. The five of us and a man called O'Driscoll who worked for Nugent's. And he was the most marvellous man to listen to talking and the cat. So there was five of us, the man in charge of the pony trap and the cat. All the way out to the galley head, he talked about this and that. Never boring, most interesting, up and down hills and dales and twist, rough roads and mostly rough roads. Yeah. And you had to hire this pony trap, did you? Well, no, the, 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 the Irish the light, lights covered it. Oh, the Irish lights covered it, yeah. So my father had arranged all this. We were children, you see, things happen and you just go along. Yeah. And we got to the galley head anyway in daylight, quite a nice mild day and there was a family waiting for us there there were my father was replacing a man called Crowley but Mr Crowley wherever he was to go the house wasn't ready so the Crowley man was still here when he should have not been there and he was there to greet us and he he and his wife and a boy of about 12 around my own brother's age and I don't know whether he heard the cat or whether he just thought well you know these are newcomers we got out of the trap. Oh, they were lovely. They were standing by a gate that's no longer there and welcomed us. And the first thing the boy said to us was, don't go out in the cliffs, he said. There's a wild cat out there. Now, whether he had heard our cat, because, of course, Scamp made quite a lot of noise. And anyway, what we did, we went into the house and got sorted. And the first thing we did, of course, was go out to look for the wild cat, which wasn't there. But there we are anyway at the galley head. Now, life was very different at the galley head. It was very, very quiet. Even today, there's no sound, hardly at the galley head. Very quiet. The odd cow, perhaps. Not very noisy with seagulls. And you might hear a horse and cartons or the rough iron shod wheels and all this kind of thing. So we were just to the life as it was at the galley head. And it was very, very quiet, actually. And things were scarce, and there was rationing, and cigarettes were rationed, and my father would be kind of desperate for the cigarette. He did get some sort of an allowance for cigs. But life went on. We went to the school, a small, again, a small, very small little two-room school, very different to and Cove. How, and how did you manage for going to a shop? Because well, no, yeah. you see, that's the thing. My father had, I don't think my mother ever rode a bicycle. My father had a bicycle. My brother trained himself to ride that bicycle. So... Twice in the month, a local farmer was financed by the Irish Lights to do the shopping for us. So he would go to town, usually in the horse and cart, and with, my mother would make the list of what she would need. So you had to shop very carefully. You had to shop to know what you really needed. Do you know what I mean? There was no bottled water or anything like that, you see, and lemonade and all that real treat. You'd make your list. The man would take this with, again, a big hamper, and he would do the shopping for us in Clonakilty. 
Now, as well as that, because there was more time, you had to register with the grocers. So we registered clearage in Clonakilty, and they supplied the essentials, and there was a certain amount of, I won't say scarcity, but there was rationing. You had to be careful what you'd buy and what you could get even. Funny enough, tea was rationed, so tea was well-minded. You could get as much cocoa and drink in chocolate as you liked, funny enough. But not tea. But not tea. Now, coffee was mostly Irish. My father used to make ground coffee as a big treat for us. Heated up in a saucepan with milk and a bit of sugar. Very, very seldom. It wasn't good for you, you see, but it was a treat. And then during the war, the only coffee I remember was the Ireland coffee, which you can get to this day. It's Tall little exactly, bottle. And it's yeah. an essence off of the baking. But we drank coke ourselves and the tea was mine, it was rationed. So there we were then. And you learned, we were children, we went to school. We, we lead our own lives as children. Adults are up here on another level, but you're aware of things. And you watched the sea, of course, looked at the sea, and my brother was obsessed with ships in the sea and this kind of thing. And we went to school. We didn't particularly like school. We, well, we didn't like the teachers then. But you just got on with things. We walked to school. Twice a month we had our shopping. Now, as a big treat, now and again, and I don't know who arranged what, my mother might go and the pony and trap, the farmer's pony and trap would be brought out. And she'd go off then and she'd do. There were things you needed. You have to mind your clothing. There was rationed. Clothes were rationed. So you minded what you had and you repaired your clothes. And you, I know she had a great friend in Skerries who she used to write to. And she would send, I remember I had a coat which my mother sent to this lady, she was, um, Devani was her name, and she could turn it inside out in some way. So you got further wear out of her clothes. So this was life. You weren't short of it. Now, it was a hard life I felt for country people. And farming was very different to what it is today, and you'd observe things. This evening, we bring you the first of two programmes entitled The Lightkeeper's Daughter and German U-Boat 260. Through the eyes of a 12-year-old girl, Mary Glanville, now Mary McCarthy, we hear the intriguing story of U-260, the submarine that was scuttled off the West Cork coast in 1945. What happened to her and what was her business in the area, bearing in mind that in her nine patrols she had sunk only one ship. But it's also an insight into what life was like for rural people during World War II. Part 3 in Programme 1 is coming your way in a few moments.